This month's bandwidth is brought to you by Psychedelic Water. Legal psychedelics suspended in green tea and then put inside of a can for you. Psychedelic Water. Who needs a Tillinghast resonator when you've got Psychedelic Water? Are you a curvy girl? Do you know a curvy girl? You love a curvy girl. Check out the show links for Curvy Girl. Plus size clothing for plus size women. Size up, ladies. It's pretty good stuff. I think I've got a, I've got a sickness for the thickness, and I have to recommend Curvy Girl. All right. Also, Larry, fine, fine student instruments, beginner's instruments. If you want to modify a guitar, check out Glary. If you want to get into guitars, if you love guitars, Glary. Things from another world. It's a store that has art. It has toys. It has comics, graphic novels. It is the place if you like that kind of stuff. Dave and I have talked about it in the show before. They were ever a sponsor. Dave likes to check out their stuff. I like to check out their stuff. They're pretty cool. Toys, art, graphic design, not graphic design, graphic novels for you. Things from another world. Check out the show notes. Uh, check out the links on, on our website, PGTTCM. We've got specific stuff there to let you know what they've got going on for specials. Anyway, thank you again so much, and back to the show. You're listening to KZOM, Olean Public Radio. And Farmer Dave here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits, like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian leaning. Once more, we head into those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again, we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You're listening to KZOM. Hey everyone, it's me, D.B. Spitzer, your host for People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos Book Club. This month, or this chunk of the month at least, we are doing the terror by Arthur Mackin. Yes, yes we've, we've done, done this in the past, but this is a better copy, and when a better copy shows up, hey, I'm going to put it on and take the other one off. So if you liked the old copy of The Terror, well, you should, you should download it. Go to pgttcm.com, and then that'll send you on another link. That'll send you on another link because it's such an old episode. I don't even know if it was the same podcast uh, provider that I was using when I started. Or, uh, anyway, yeah. Hit. So, Arthur Mackin. We know Arthur Mackin. We love Arthur Mackin. Uh, famous Welsh writer. Uh, wrote The White People, Great God Pan. Uh, we have episodes of people talking about Arthur Mackin, so go into the archive, dive around for that. I believe uh, probably Ken Height or Andrew Grace talking about Arthur Mackin in the past. And yeah, no, that's probably going to be somewhere around 2017, 2018, 2019. We have a lot of that kind of stuff. So check that out. And it may not say People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. It may say Black Clock Audio Tales. So, yeah. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, this should be two chapters 
a little intermission with some commercials to help pay the bills. But yeah, and it should be about seven episodes. So hopefully you're enjoying this if you're several episodes into this. And I hope you're having a good commute. I hope you're having fun folding laundry. I hope you're having fun watching your kid at the playground while you do whatever you do. I hope you're having a good flight and that uh, you make your connections safely. I hope that your workday is going well. Or I hope that, uh, you know, you're just, your day off is going well, too. And, uh, yeah, everything's cool and chill. All right. Well, here we go with some terror from Arthur Mackin to mess up your tranquil lives. I haven't used that voice for a while. I hope I didn't blow anyone's ears out. Okay, here we go. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your ma, tell your pa, or I'll send you down to Sathagwa. Go to the shop, check out our sponsors. Recording by Lilith Branda. The Terror by Arthur Machen. Chapter 1. The Coming of the Terror. After two years, we are turning once more to the morning's news with a sense of appetite and glad expectation. There were thrills at the beginning of the war. The thrill of horror and of doom that seemed at once incredible and certain. This was when Namur fell and the German host swelled like a flood over the French fields and drew very near to the walls of Paris. And we felt the thrill of exultation when the good news came that the awful tide had been turned back, that Paris and the world were safe, for a while at all events. Then for days we hoped for more news as good as this or better. Has von Kluck been surrendered? Not today, but perhaps it will be surrendered tomorrow. But the days became weeks, the weeks drew out to months. The battle in the west seemed frozen. Now and again things were done that seemed hopeful, with promise of events still better. But Neuve Champel and Luz dwelled into disappointments as the tale was told fully. The lies in the west remained, for all practical purposes of victory, immobile. Nothing seemed to happen. There was nothing to read save the record of operations that were clearly trifling and insignificant. People speculated as to the reason of this inaction. The hopeful said that Joffre had a plan that he was nibbling. Others declared that we were short of munitions. Others again that the new levies were not yet ripe for battle. So the months went by. And almost two years of war had been completed before the motionless English line began to stir and quiver as if it awoke from a long sleep and began to roll onward, overwhelming the enemy. The secret of the long inaction of the British armies has been well kept. On the one hand, it was rigorously protected by the censorship, which severe and sometimes severe to the point of absurdity, the captains and the depart, for instance, became in this particular matter ferocious. As soon as the real significance of that which was happening, or beginning to happen, was perceived by the authorities, an underlined circular was issued to the newspaper proprietor of Great Britain and Ireland. It warned each proprietor that he might impart the contents of this circular to one other person only, such person being the responsible editor of his paper, he was to keep the communication secret under the severest penalties. 
The circular forbade any mention of certain events that had taken place, that might take place. It forbade any kind of allusion to these events or any hint of their existence, or of the possibility of their existence, not only in the press, but in any form whatever. The subject was not to be alluded to in conversation. It was not to be hinted at, however obscurely, in letters. The very existence of the circular, its subject apart, was to be a dead secret. These measures were successful. A wealthy newspaper proprietor of the North warmed a little at the end of the Thrower's fist, which was held as usual, it will be remembered, ventured to say to the man next to him how awful it would be, wouldn't it, if... His words were repeated as proof, one regrets to say, that it was time for old Arnold to pull himself together, and he was fined a thousand pounds. Then there was the case of an obscure weekly paper published in the county town of an agricultural district in Wales. The Myros Observer, we would call it, was issued from a stationer's back premises and filled its four pages with accounts of local flower shows, fancy fairs at vicarages, reports of parish councils and rare bathing fatalities. It also issued a visitor's list, which has been known to contain six names. This enlightened organ printed a paragraph which nobody noticed, which was very like paragraphs that small country newspapers have long been in the habit of printing, which could hardly give so much as a hint to anyone, to anyone, that is, who was not fully instructed in the secret. As a matter of fact, this piece of intelligence got into the paper because the proprietor, who was also the editor, incautiously left the last processes of this particular issue to the staff. He was the lord high everything else of the establishment, and the staff put in a bit of gossip he had heard in the market to fill up two inches on the back page. But the result was that the mayor's observer ceased to appear, owing to untoward circumstances, as the proprietor said, and he would say no more, no more, that is, by way of explanation, but a great deal more by way of execration of damned prime busybodies. Now a censorship that is sufficiently minute and utterly remorseless can do amazing things in the way of hiding. What it wants to hide. Before the war, one would have thought otherwise. One would have said that, censor or no censor, the fact of the murder at X or the fact of the bank robbery at Y would certainly become known, if not through the press, at all events, through rumour and the passage of the news from mouth to mouth. And this would be true. England three hundred years ago, and of savage tribelands of today. But we have grown of late such a preference for the printed word and such a reliance on it, that the old faculty of disseminating news by a word of mouth has become atrophied. Forbid the press to mention the fact that Jones has been murdered, and it is marvellous how few people will hear of it, and of those who hear, how few will credit the story that they have heard. You meet a man in a train who remarks that he has been told something about a murder in Southwark. There is all the difference in the world between the impression you receive from such a chance communication and that given by half a dozen lines of print with name, and street and date, and all the facts of the case. People in trains repeat all sorts of tales, many of them false, 
Newspapers do not print accounts of murders that have not been committed. Then another consideration that has made for secrecy, I may have seemed to say that the old office of rumor no longer exists. I shall be reminded of the strange legend of the Russians and the mythology of the angels of Mons. But let me point out, in the first place, that both these absurdities depended on the papers for their wide dissemination. If there had been no newspapers or magazines, Russians and angels would have made but a brief, vague appearance of the most shadowy kind. A few would have heard of them, fewer still would have believed in them. They would have been gossiped about for a bare week or two, and so they would have vanished away. And then again, the very fact of these vain rumours and fantastic tales, having been so widely believed for a time, was fatal to the credit of any stray mutterings that may have got abroad. People had been taken in twice. They had seen how grave persons, men of credit, had preached and lectured about the shining forms that had saved the British army at Mons, and had testified the trains, packed with grey-coated muscovites, rushing through the land at dead of night, and now there was a hint of something more amazing than either of the discredited legends. But this time, there was no word of confirmation to be found in daily paper, or weekly review, or parish magazine. A sort of few that had either laughed or being serious went home and jotted down nooks for essays on wartime psychology, collective delusions. I followed neither of these courses, for before the secret circular had been issued, my curiosity had somehow been aroused by certain paragraphs concerning a fatal accident to well-known airmen. The propeller of the airplane had been shattered, apparently by collision with a flight of pigeons, the blaze had been broken, and the machine had fallen like lead to the earth. And soon after, as in this account, I heard of some very odd circumstances relating to an explosion in the great munition factory in the Midlands. I thought I saw the possibility of a connection between two very different events. It has been pointed out to me by friends who have been good enough to read this record, the certain phrases I have used may give the impression that I ascribe all the delays of the war on the Western Front to the extraordinary circumstances which occasioned the issue of the secret circular. Of course this is not the case. There were many reasons for the immobility of our lines from October 1914 to July 1916. These causes have been evident enough and have been openly discussed and deplored, but behind them was something of infinitely greater moment. We lacked men, but men were pouring into the new army. We were short of shells, but when the shortage was proclaimed, the nation set itself to mend this matter with all its energy. We could undertake to supply the defects of our army both in men and munitions, if the new and incredible danger could be overcome. It has been overcome, rather, perhaps. It has ceased to exist, and the secret may now be told. I have said my attention was attracted by an account of the death of a well-known airman. I have not a habit of preserving cuttings, I am sorry to say, so that I cannot be precise as to the date of this event. To the best of my belief, it was either towards the end of May or the beginning of June 1915. The newspaper paragraph announcing the death of Flight Lieutenant Western Reynolds was brief enough 
accidents and fatal accidents to the men who are storming the air for us are unfortunately by no means so rare as to demand an elaborated notice but the manner in which western reynolds met his death struck me as extraordinary inasmuch as it revealed a new danger in the element that we have lately conquered he was brought down as i said by a flight of birds of pigeons as appeared by what was found on the blood-stained and shattered blades of the propeller an eyewitness of the accident a fellow officer described how western reynolds set out from the aerodrome on a fine afternoon there being hardly any wind he was going to france he had made the journey to and fro half a dozen times or more and felt perfectly secure and at ease westerns rose to a great height at once and we could scarcely see the machine i was turning to go when one of the fellows called out i say what's this he pointed up and we saw what looked like a black cloud coming from the south at a tremendous rate i saw at once it wasn't a cloud it came with a swirl and a rush quite different from any cloud i've ever seen but for a second i couldn't make out exactly what it was it altered its shape and turned into a great crescent and wheeled and veered about as if it was looking for something the man who had called out had got his glasses and was staring for all he was worth then he shouted that it was a tremendous flight of birds thousands of them they went on wheeling and beating about high up in the air and we were watching them thinking it was interesting but not supposing that they would make any difference to wester who was just about out of sight his machine was just a spake then the two arms of the crescent drew in as quick as lightning and these thousands of birds shot in a solid mass right up there across the sky and flew away somewhere about nor nor by west then haney the man with the glasses called out he's dumb and started running and i went after him we got a car and as we were going along haney told me that he'd seen the machine drop dead as if it came out of that cloud of birds he thought then that they must have mucked up the propeller somehow that turns out to be the case we found the propeller blades all broken and covered with blood and pigeon feathers and carcasses of the birds had got wedged in between the blades and were sticking to them this was a story that the young airman told one evening in a small company he did not speak in confidence so i have no hesitation in reproducing what he said naturally i did not take a verbatim note of his conversation but i have something of a knack of remembering talk that interests me and i think my reproduction is very near to the tale that i heard and let it be noted that the flying man told his story without any sense or indication of a sense that the incredible or all but the incredible had happened so far as he knew he said it was the first accident of the kind airmen in france had been bothered once or twice by birds he thought they were eagles flying viciously at them but poor old wester had been the first man to come up against a flight of some thousands of pigeons and perhaps i shall be the next he added but why look for trouble anyhow i'm going to see Tudo to-morrow afternoon well i heard the story as one hears all the varied marvels and terrors of the air as one heard some years ago of air pockets strange gulfs or voids in the atmosphere into which airmen fell with great peril 
Or has one heard of the experience of the airman who flew over the Cumberland Mountains in the burning summer of 1911, and as he swam far above the heights, was suddenly and vehemently blown upwards, the hot air from the rock striking his plane as if it had been a blast from a furnace chimney. We have just begun to navigate a strange region. We must expect to encounter strange adventures, strange perils. And here a new chapter in the chronicles of these perils and adventures had been opened by the death of Western Reynolds. No doubt invention and contrivance would presently hit on some way of countering the new danger. It was, I think, about a week or ten days after the airman's death that my business called me to a northern town, the name of which, perhaps, had better remain unknown. My mission was to inquire into certain charges of extravagance which had been laid against the working people, that is, the munition workers of this especial town. It was said that the men who used to earn two pounds ten shillings a week were now getting from seven to eight pounds, that bits of girls were being paid two pounds instead of seven or eight shillings, and that, in consequence, there was an orgy of foolish extravagance. The girls, I was told, were eating chocolates at four, five, and six shillings a pound. The women were ordering thirty-pound pianos which they couldn't play, and the men bought gold chains at ten and twenty guineas apiece. I dived into the town in question and found, as usual, that there was a mixture of truth and exaggeration in the stories that I had heard. Gramophones, for example, they cannot be called in strictness necessaries, but they were undoubtedly finding a ready sale, even in the more expensive brands, and I thought that there were a great many very spick and span perambulators to be seen on the pavement, smart perambulators, painted in tender shades of colour and expensively fitted. And how can you be surprised if people will have a bit of a fling? A worker said to me, we are seeing money for the first time in our lives, and it's bright, and we work hard for it, and we risk our lives to get it. You've heard of explosion yonder? He mentioned certain works on the outskirts of the town. Of course, neither the name of the works nor of the town had been printed. There had been a brief notice of explosion at munition works in the northern district. Many fatalities. The working man told me about it and added some dreadful details. They wouldn't let their folks see the bodies, screwed them up in coffins as they found them in shop. The gas had done it. Turned the faces black, you mean? Nay, they were all as if they had been bitten to pieces. This was a strange gas. I asked the man in the northern town all sorts of questions about the extraordinary explosion of which he had spoken to me, but it had very little more to say. As I have noted already, secrets that may not be printed are often deeply kept. Last summer, there were very few people outside high official circles who knew anything about the tanks, of which we have all been talking lately. Though these strange instruments of war were being exercised and tested in a park not far from London, so the man who told me of the explosion in the munition factory was most likely genuine in his profession that he knew nothing more of the disaster. I found out that he was a smelter employed at a furnace on the other side of the town to the ruined factory. He didn't know even what they had been making there. Some very dangerous high explosive, he supposed. 
His information was really nothing more than a bit of gruesome gossip, which he had heard probably at third or fourth or fifth hand. The horrible detail of faces, as if they had been bitten to pieces, had made its violent impression on him. That was all. I gave him up and took a tram to the district of the disaster, a sort of industrial suburb, five miles from the centre of the town. When I asked for the factory, I was told that it was no good my going to it as there was nobody there. But I found it, a raw and hideous shed with a walled yard about it and a shut gate. I looked for signs of destruction, but there was nothing. The roof was quite undamaged, and again it struck me that this had been a strange accident. There had been an explosion of sufficient violence to kill workpeople in the building, but the building itself showed no wounds or scars. A man came out of the gate and locked it behind him. I began to ask him some sort of question, rather. I began to open for a question. With a terrible business here, they tell me, or some such phrase of convention. I got no farther. The man asked me if I saw a policeman walking down the street. I said I did, and I was given the choice of getting about my business forthwith or of being instantly given in charge as a spy. Thest better be gone and quick about it, was, I think, his final advice, and I took it. Well, I had come literally up against a brick wall. Thinking the problem over, I could only suppose that the smelter or his informant had twisted the phrases of the story. The smelter had said the dead man's faces were bitten to pieces. This might be an unconscious perversion of eaten away. That phrase might describe well enough the effect of strong acids. And for all I knew of the processes of munition making, such acids might be used and might explode with horrible results in some perilous stage of their admixture. It was a day or two later that the accident of the airman, Western Reynolds, came into my mind. For one of those instants, which are far shorter than any measure of time, there flashed out the possibility of a link between the two disasters. But here was a wild impossibility, and I drove it away. And yet, I think that the thought, mad as it seemed, never left me. It was the secret light that at last guided me through a sombre grove of enigmas. It was about this time, so far as the date can be fixed, that a whole district, one might say a whole county, was visited by a series of extraordinary and terrible calamities, which were the more terrible inasmuch as they continued for some time to be inscrutable mysteries. It is, indeed, doubtful whether these awful events do not still remain mysteries to many of those concerned. For before the inhabitants of this part of the country had time to join one link of evidence to another, the secular was issued, and thenceforth no one knew how to distinguish undoubted facts from wild and extravagant surmise. The district in question is in the far west of Wales, I shall call it for convenience, Marion. In it there is one seaside town of some repute with holiday makers for five or six weeks in the summer, and dotted about the county there are three or four small old towns that seem drooping in a slow decay, sleepy and grey with age and forgetfulness. They remind me of what I have read of towns in the west of Ireland. Grass grows between the uneven stones of the pavements, the sides above the shop windows decline, 
Half the letters of these signs are missing. Here and there, a house has been pulled down, or has been allowed to slide into ruin, and wild greenery springs up through the fallen stones, and there is silence in all the streets. And it is to be noted, these are not places that were once magnificent. The Celts have never had the art of building, and so far as I can see, such towns as Towin and Marthel, Teveld and Meiros must have been always much as they are now. Clusters of poorish, mainly built houses, ill-kept and down at hill. And these few towns are thinly scattered over a wild country where north is divided from south by a wilder mountain range. One of these places is sixteen miles from any station. The others are doubtfully and deviously connected by single-line railways served by rare trains that pause and stagger and hesitate on their slow journey up mountain passes, or stop for half an hour or more at lonely sheds called stations, situated in the midst of desolate marshes. A few years ago, I travelled with an Irishman on one of these queer lines, and he looked to right and saw the bog with its yellow and blue grasses and stagnant pools, and he looked to left and saw a ragged hillside, set with grey stone walls. I can hardly believe, he said, that I'm not still in the wilds of Ireland. Here then, one sees a wild and divided and scattered region, a land of outland hills and secret and hidden valleys, I know white farms on this coast which must be separate by two hours of hard, rough walking from any other habitation, which are invisible from any other house. And inland, again, the farms are often ringed about by thick rows of ash, planted by men of old days to shelter their roof trees from rude winds of the mountain and stormy winds of the sea, so that these places, too, are hidden away, she be surmised only by the wood smoke that rises from the green surrounding leaves. A Londoner must see them to believe in them, and even then he can scarcely credit their utter isolation. Such, then, in the main is Marion, and on this land, in the early summer of last year, terror descended, a terror without shape, such as no man there had ever known. It began with the tale of a little child who wandered out into the lanes to pick flowers one sunny afternoon and never came back to the cottage on the hill. End of chapter one. Hey everyone. It's me, Timmy. Just reminding you. We have t-shirts in the shop. Just go to pgttcm.com. Check out all our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we've got some shell curtains in there. Keep clean. Look cool. Have cool stickers to put on stuff. Join us on Patreon and get a free sticker. Or don't. It's up to you. This episode is brought to you by Donner. Check out the show notes to find a good deal at Donner. Like the sound of this? This is the Donner Island Delay, and the really cool Donner LP that I've shown off on, like, Instagram. Check it out. I've got some really good summer deals, and check out their snap deals as well. Use the link in the show notes to help support the show. Get yourself some cool musical instruments, maybe some patch chords. Cool. This episode is brought to you by California Tea House. 
California Tea House is a family-owned tea store where you can find some of the world's best loose-leaf tea and organic herbal tea blends. Like a fine wine, there is no comparison between fine loose-leaf and common broken-leaf tea bags. So, yeah, no, check them out. Check them out. They have quite a bit of pretty awesome tea collections. I'm a huge fan of their white teas. Uh, They have a tea club that you can join, but, you know, they've got green tea, black tea, white tea, oolong, that uh, robios and herbal tea. They've also got teaware. So check out California Tea House in the show notes. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show, how to support our guests, and thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe, and remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. Recording by Zach Van Stanley. The Terror by Arthur McKen. Chapter 2. Death in the Village. The child who was lost came from a lonely cottage that stands on the slope of a steep hillside called the Alt, or the Height. The land about it is wild and ragged. Here the growth of gorse and bracken, here a marshy hollow of reeds and rushes, marking the course of the stream from some hidden well. Here thickets of dense and tangled undergrowth, the outposts of wood. Down through this broken and uneven ground, a path leads to the lane at the bottom of the valley. Then the land rises again and swells up to the cliffs over the sea, about a quarter of a mile away. The little girl, Gertrude Morgan, asked her mother if she might go down to the lane and pick up the purple flowers. These were orchids that grew there, and her mother gave her leave, telling her that she must be back by tea time, as there was apple tart for tea. She never came back. It was supposed that she must have crossed the road and gone to the cliff's edge, possibly in order to pick the sea pinks that were then in full blossom. She must have slipped, they said, and fallen into the sea, two hundred feet below. And it may be said at once that there was no doubt, some truth in this conjecture, though it stopped very short of the whole truth. The child's body must have been carried out by the tide, for it was never found. The conjecture of a false step, or of a fatal slide, on the slippery turf that slopes down the rocks was accepted as the only explanation possible. People thought the accident a strange one because, as a rule, the country children living by the cliffs and the sea became wary at an early age, and Gertrude Morgan was almost ten years old. Still, as the neighbors said, that's how it must have happened, and it's a great pity to be sure. But 
This would not do when in a week's time a strong young laborer failed to come to his cottage after the day's work. His body was found on the rock six or seven miles from the cliffs where the child was supposed to have fallen. He was going home by a path that he had used every night of his life for eight or nine years when he used the dark of nights in perfect security, knowing every inch of it. The police asked if he drank, but he was a teetotaler. If he were subject to fits, but he wasn't. And he was not murdered for his wealth, since agricultural laborers are not wealthy. It was only possible again to talk of slippery turf and a false step, but people began to be frightened. Then a woman was found with her neck broken at the bottom of a disused quarry near La Fehangel, in the middle of the country. The false step theory was eliminated here, for the quarry was guarded with a natural hedge of gorse bushes. One would have to struggle to fight through sharp thorns to destruction in such a place as this. And, indeed, the gorse bushes were broken, as if someone had rushed furiously through them, just above the place where the woman's body was found. And this was strange. There was a dead sheep lying beside her in the pit, as if the woman and the sheep together had been chased over the brim of the quarry. But chased by whom, or by what? And then there was a new form of terror. This was in the region of the marshes under the mountain. A man and his son, a lad fourteen or fifteen, set out early one morning to work and never reached the farm where they were bound. Their way skirted the marsh, but it was broad, firm, and well-metalled, and it had been raised about two feet over the bog. But when search was made in the evening of the same day, Phillips and his son were found dead in the marsh, covered with black slime and pondweed, and they lay some ten yards from the path which it would seem they must have left deliberately. It was useless, of course, to look for tracks in the black ooze. For, if one threw a big stone into it, a few seconds removed all marks of the disturbance. The men who found the two bodies beat about the verges and purlius of the marsh in hope of finding some trace of the murderers. They went to and fro over the rising ground where the black cattle were grazing. They searched the alder thickets by the brook, but they discovered nothing. Most horrible of all these horrors, perhaps, was the affair of the highway, a lonely and unfrequented by-road that winds for many miles on a high and lonely land. Here, a mile from any other dwelling, stands a cottage on the edge of a dark wood. It was inhabited by a laborer named Williams, his wife, and their three children. One hot summer's evening, a man who had been doing a day's gardening at the rectory three or four miles away passed the cottage and stopped for a few minutes to chat with Williams, the laborer, who was pottering about his garden. While the children were playing on the path by the door, the two talked of their neighbors and of the potatoes till Mrs. Williams appeared at the doorway and said supper was ready, and Williams turned to go into the house. This was about eight o'clock, and in the ordinary course the family would have their supper and be in bed by nine, or by half-past nine at the latest. At ten o'clock that night, the local doctor was driving home along the highway. His horse shied violently and then stopped dead just opposite the gate to the cottage. The doctor got down, 
frightened at what he saw, and there on the roadway lay Williams, his wife, and the three children, stone dead, all of them. Their skulls were battered in, as if by some heavy iron instrument. Their faces were beaten to a pulp. End of chapter 2. Recording by Zach Van Stanley.